Welcome to the Intersection Podcast at Scheller College of Business at Georgia Tech. My name is Jasmine Howard, and I'm a second-year MBA in the full-time program here, and your host for The Intersection. Today, we are very excited to have our first roundtable episode, where we talk about how technology is influencing different industries and subject areas that Georgia Tech has a special interest in. Today's topic is mobility. We'll go around the table and see who we have here to join us. Hey, uh, my name is Sunny Gupta. I'm a first-year student at the Scheller's College of Business, and I'm a full-time student and happy to be here. Awesome. Hey, I'm Steven Stradley. I'm a second-year full-time student uh, in Scheller's MBA program, and yeah, it's, it's a real pleasure to be here with each of you. Hi, I'm Pat Mokhtarian. I'm a professor in the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering here at Georgia Tech. Great. Well, thank you all for being with us today. This is, like we said, our first industry roundtable, and we pick mobility because we know we have so many great people here who are passionate about this topic. So just to get started, uh, what about kind of that intersection of mobility and technology interests you, and why are you, why are you here? Why are you here to talk to us? And we'll start with our professor here. Oh, thank you. Well, uh, my research specialty is travel behavior, so I've been interested in how people choose their travel-related decisions for a long time. And for the first 20 years of my career, it was pretty much business as usual, but in the last decade or so, it's exploded in terms of what technology is allowing uh, that wasn't possible before. So I and most of my colleagues in travel behavior research, as well as other areas in transportation, are just having the time of our lives trying to understand what's going to happen with this intersection of technology and mobility. Awesome. Steven? Yeah, I um, I guess technology is kind of a, a later addition in terms of my passion to transportation. I, I got into it back in 2010 working with the International Rescue Committee when, when we were trying to find jobs for recently resettled refugees. The only place we could find them was very far west of Atlanta. So their commute would be bus, rail, rail, bus, 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 uh, resulting in two and a half to three and a half hour commutes. Uh, it struck me then how bad commutes just were in general, for many, uh, not just for refugees, but for hundreds of thousands of Atlantans. Um, and I saw a figure recently about 29% of Atlantans cross two county lines on their way to work, uh, at least within the metro area. So that really jumped me off. I was a politics student in undergrad, um, but I've always had a passion for technology and especially for how technology can solve certain problems that weren't able to be solved before. So my hope is that there can be some way uh, that technology can be utilized to lessen the commute uh, and make that less burdensome, especially for working class and working poor. Awesome. Sunny? Um, <clears throat> I consider myself a bit of a technology enthusiast, so no like real direct interest in um, you know business mobility. But then when I when I heard about the potential for autonomous vehicles, I sort of picked it up uh, a few years ago when Google started playing around with it, and now Tesla's bring it bringing it to mainstream. I think all the major problems that we are facing as people, you know, when you talk about environmental health, uh, even commuting and things like that. When I think about the potential of AV, it's, I think it's mind-boggling how much of an impact it will have. So that's, that's what I'm really excited to right think here, about. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, definitely huge implications, global scale, big macro stuff going on. So I want to start a little bit smaller than that because we, <laughs> we don't have the whole semester to be locked in this podcast booth. Um, so Stephen, what... We're going to go through, just for our new listeners, for our new roundtable format, we're going to go through all of our panelists today have brought kind of a topic or an area of interest, um, and we're just talking about what's going on in the space and what, what we can see going on in the future. So, Stephen, get us started. 
Yeah, one of the things that really sticks out to me, especially as an MBA student, is the way that the public sector and the private sector can interact uh, to make transportation solutions better uh, for people across the United States. And in doing that, there are lots of different examples we can look at today, whether it be uh, Uber showing transportation times in their app throughout the city of Denver. Uh, it can be or, uh, organizations or businesses like Remix in San Francisco that run uh, data analytics platforms for uh, companies from AC Transit in Oakland, which I'm quite familiar with, <laughs> uh, to many other different transit agencies around the United States and the world. So there are a lot of neat um, a lot of neat opportunities for the private sector to play with the public sector. I think one thing, though, that, that really has drawn me into business school, and I'm, I'm curious to learn more uh, about, um, about y'all's stance looking at how public and private can play together. And in working with MARTA and doing my undergrad thesis on MARTA and racial inequity in college, I was just surprised over and over again with the slowness and the ability of government uh, to solve problems. And as a result, <laughs> I find myself here today uh, looking to pursue a career in mobility uh, via an MBA rather than looking at it through public policy because I believe that um, solutions can be brought forth faster there. Now that said, uh, as anybody's seen here, both Uber and Lyft's IPOs have shown that transportation uh, as funded solely by the consumer is going to be a tough sell just in terms of how the margins are going to cut. Um, as a result, that kind of leaning on government uh, insist or subsistence in a company, if you look at it like VIA, where they're using government funds to be able to uh, supply a service for the working class and working poor is a really interesting model for both public and private uh, partnerships together. I guess for each of you, what are some of the promising examples you may have seen about public and private uh, partnerships or even just private um, industry solving some of those needs as well? Yeah. Um, so I think I think my example is kind of basic, right? Um, I think about the scooters that are on our streets, right? And I listen to a fair amount of NPR in the city of Atlanta, and people on NPR are usually complaining quite a bit about the inconvenience they cause, right? If you're living in the city, you know, you have a nice sidewalk, all of a sudden there's like 50 scooters all over the place. Um, but one of the one of the people who came on, he spoke that you know there are a little bit of an inconvenience. They are kind of scattered all over the place, but you have kids who are using it to get to school, right? Um, you have people who are using it for, for like very daily transportation. So when I think about the private and like how it can help, I don't think very many people thought like, oh, to travel one mile, just go get a bike or something, right? But people are, are using these smart scooters, smart bikes, and I think they have a place here. One, one thing that's caught my attention about the scooters was a study back uh, study done in Paris back in the spring where it was showing that the vast majority of scooter rides that we see today uh, aren't replacing or are replacing just another walking trip. Mm. Um, and that, as somebody who is a, a very advocate um, or, yeah, a very encouraging advocate uh, on behalf of last mile transportation as somebody living in Atlanta without a car. Um, I, I see that need there, and I, I use it for that purpose. But I wonder how can, how can micromobility be encouraged to serve that last mile need better than it is today, um, given the way that the market structures? It, it makes sense for these companies not to put any restrictions, to make it as easy for you to check one out, not to require that your headphone I mean, that your helmet matches with 
their sensor to tell you that you are wearing a helmet and riding safely. Those kinds of precautions limit their funnel and make it tougher. And I think it's very tricky to understand how can governments legislate. I mean, we've seen already jump bike pull out of Atlanta. How can governments, though, legislate changes to make these products safer and encourage actual effective last mile transit um, while still preserving uh, the viability of the business. I think it's a really tricky question for them. Well, I think y'all are the experts, so I love to hear you talk about this, but I know we all saw the headlines last week with um, the mayor, with Keisha Lance Bottoms, launching expanded bike lanes. And my understanding from NPR and maybe <laughs> other publications around Atlanta was that's not necessarily for bikers. That's for scooter safety because we've unfortunately had so many tragedies occur with people riding scooters at night and not not using the safety precautions that, that Stephen outlined. So I would say that's where the city is entering the space and creating kind of some extra parameters because if, it, if that behavior is going to happen, then let's make space for people to be able to use it for a last mile transit. What yeah. is, yeah. I was just going to say, unfortunately, I think the people that are picking up these scooters for the first time aren't really fully aware of what it takes to safely ride on a city. Even a city sidewalk, it's very crowded. You have to sort of navigate through people. But then when you get on the street, um, even experienced bikers are sometimes very free with the traffic um, traffic rules, right? So um, unfortunately, there have been, I think, three or four deaths. So I think it's a good move by the city to say, you know, this is our reality. And rather than over-legislating, like just saying it's not going to happen, to be proactive about it and say, yeah, we can help bikers, but since we're facing this issue, let's go ahead and address, you know, these like last mile transports as well. Yeah, and the infrastructure, the same infrastructure that will support scooters riding more safely also help cyclists. So I think um, cities are gaining much more of a, a sense that we need to be supporting something other than the automobile for a change and <laughs> making it easier to do this last mile. Um, you make a good point, though, that they're not always replacing car trips. In fact, scooter trips probably pretty seldom are replacing car trips. And if they're replacing walk trips, is that necessarily a good thing with respect to physical activity and the obesity epidemic? So there are all these complex issues that I don't think have easy answers, but I do think a general orientation toward uh, supporting micromobility um, sub, um, solutions of all kinds is is where the cities are headed and where they should be headed. One thing that stuck out to me as a San Francisco resident with the way that they've been uh, interacting with the scooter companies over there is that Lurden, uh, Lurd, new scooter company, uh, <laughs> Bird and Lime were both actually kicked out during 2018. And so you've had Spin, uh, and I can't even actually remember the name of the other scooter company, but you've had two of the basically secondary companies come in there. What it's shown is that they've actually been able to make those new companies meet all of their demands in order for safer streets. Now that said, San Francisco, be it the boulders on the street that you guys might have heard about this week where, oh, well, it's, a, <laughs> well it, it's an interesting thing. And it, you, we're diving a little off the mobility, but still very much on the livability uh, aspect where on uh, one part, um, close to downtown, but not quite downtown, uh, residents were putting boulders on the street um, or on the sidewalk. They had a large sidewalk and the idea and please feel free to jump in if you want to correct me, uh, was that if they put these boulders, it would not deter smaller tents from homeless people, but rather it would push away larger tents where drug dealers were able to interact with clients within them. Um, 
I thought this was going to like a scooter collision story. Like yeah. you're going too fast and you're going to hit a bowler. Well, this, <laughs> this really took a turn. <laughs> Fascinating though. Yeah, um, yeah really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I guess there we are with boulders. But <laughs> uh, regardless, getting back to scooters in San Francisco, it's really actually allowed the city to stiff arm um, those companies into getting the exact exact regulations they want. And in a place like Atlanta now, where we're allowing so many different operators uh, to be able to choose their products and compete with one another, perhaps it would make more sense for us to find which ones are going to be best with and working with the city to achieve common goals, and then work with them to create a vision rather than just fostering unlimited competition as we effectively see today. Yeah, there's a lot of conversation in the research world, and I think uh, in the uh, government as well, that these companies come in and just sort of helicopter a bunch of vehicles on the streets and sidewalks, um, but don't share the data, you know, and the cities are like, and the scholars, researchers are like, uh, we need to get a handle on what's going on from a, you know, from our own perspective, not from the self-interested perspective of the private sector. So I do think cities and government in general should exercise some leverage. I mean, government does provide the common rights of way that all of these systems are using. And so in return for that, uh, they should be able to negotiate some uh, idea of data sharing. And I'm sure there are safeguards that can be put in place that protects the company's proprietary interests and so on. Um, but we all need a bit more transparency on what's going on, how much, when, where, um, and so forth. Awesome. I think that's a great conclusion. It really brings us home to, to Scheller and how data-focused we are. I'm sure everyone would love to analyze those data sets. Um, Sunny, I'm going to pass it to you. What's what's the topic that you wanted to bring to the table today? So um, I recently heard about Uber's like sort of transformation push. Um, I think over the past year, uh, their CEO, uh, I don't know how to pronounce the last name, so I'll just say Dara, um, their their CEO's been pushing Uber as sort of like a place to like get your mobility done, right? Kind of kind of like more as a platform, which I think to most people is just like, okay, I'm still going to get my rides there. But I think recently they like revamped their app and now they're doing now it's like literally through the app it is more of a platform so you can go there for your rides. Um, scooters, Uber Eats is I think on one app now. Um, I think you can even use it to scan into like subways. Um, so, you know, I'm not 100% sure what that'll mean, right? Because I think for the company, it's a pretty big pivot. I'm I'm not 100% sure how people will internalize it, how they'll react to it, right? What do you guys think? One thing that sticks out to me about the, the suite that Uber offers up, and again, this, as with everything, I look at it from the political science undergrad perspective that I always have, but... Uh, each of those are goods that you're really selling to the upper middle class or upper class. You know, you're talking about rides that people are taking. And, and yes, more millennials are taking uh, Uber and Lyft rides around. But in general, you still are seeing those from people that are middle class and above. If you're seeing Uber Eats, people that are doing that more consistently, again, are going to be younger and in a wealthier demographic. Uh, and really with the, the rest of their services as well, it's focused on a really small segment of the population. Um, now, that said, it... it many different people can access those services once or twice in order to give the company value. And, and that's a, a more legitimate argument on their behalf. Uh, I still think that the decision on their part to include uh, the ability for the metro check-in uh, is intriguing, uh, but also seems out of out of character with what they... Um, 
with with yeah. their with their other the products. Core competencies and their other, but yeah, like. I, I as a transit advocate, I personally love the idea of actually providing a more real hub and spoke model for between public transit and private transportation. And if they're indeed, or I mean, if their uh, intentions uh, are indeed sincere, then uh, is providing more of that hub as. I'm, We'll, we'll, we'll find out, yeah. Um, <laughs> then, yeah, that does appeal to me. But, it, again, those are things that are going to have to play out. Well, they are in business to make money, so it wouldn't be surprising that they would see a market there, and I think there may well be one. Uh, and kudos to them for um, trying to do something like that at one level. What worries me a little bit is, again, um, a monopolistic possibility and a lack of data transparency possibility. And, you know, it's one thing if Amazon, again, very shrewdly, and it took them, of course, a long time to actually get into the black. I remember how long they were bleeding red ink, and <laughs> everybody was wondering, is this really ever going to take off um, in any kind of, you know, money making way. Um, but look at them now, right? And so, you know, I can see Uber trying to do much the same thing. And again, more power to them up to a point. Um, as I started to say, it's one thing if Amazon kind of takes over the online marketplace, you still have options where you can buy directly from retailers. You can find retailers on your own, you know, lots of places to go, actual stores, what a concept. Um, <laughs> But, you know, with transportation and kind of the one-stop shop, um, if they start locking people in and that becomes the portal by which all your transportation is, is engaged, and again, they know all of that about you, but nobody else does, that worries me a little bit. So I feel like there needs to be, uh, again, some, some way of fostering competition and some kind of data sharing um, among at least pl planners and researchers. I, I very much agree um, with regards to the data sharing. And I, I, yeah, I, I'm very curious to hear more about your thoughts in terms of how can that, how can that be actually be encouraged uh, in private industry. Um, one other thing, though, that, that uh, stuck out to me on the topic, um, thinking about uh, Uber is that perhaps this has the potential to destigmatize the bus system that we see today. I think one of the things I, I went recently on a, a networking trip actually up to Roswell. So I took uh, the train from where I live right here uh, up to uh, North Springs. Then I took the bus from North Springs up to uh, right outside a diner in Roswell. And I had uh, a great conversation uh, with a family friend. We're talking, and he couldn't believe that I had taken the bus to get there, and more or less, very kindly refused for me to uh, refuse to allow me to take the bus back to North Spring Station. And I think it really highlights just how stigmatized in Atlanta the bus system is versus elsewhere. And if you begin to see uh, transportation that's provided by the government in the same application as Uber, perhaps it has. Uh, the potential to, at least in the consumer end, to look at it as this is a good that applies to me more. Yeah. So, just like sort of bouncing off that, I'm I'm like really intrigued by this idea that Uber could present it sort of as like a more chic way of transport, right? But for <laughs> but, fancy bus, yeah. <laughs> but like for like people that don't really consider bus to be your transportation, I can think about how Uber packages a end-to-end -end transport, right? So, like, say you're going to Marietta, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of showing you, hey, just Uber car will take you this long, it'll cost you 30 bucks, they can show you, hey, but if you take Uber to the MARTA station, you take MARTA up, you take this bus, it'll cost you maybe $15, 
it'll it'll you know take you maybe 15 minutes longer i think putting all that information in front of people um i think it'll make those less used transports more more used but then i think for people who are a little who are looking for more affordable options right um there might be some interesting packages that could be put together like hey um if you're going to commute to work, you can use this package through Uber, and you can maybe your bus rides and your train rides are subsidized and things like that. So, you know, there's some real potential there. I think. Uh, yeah, Stephen's going to give us yeah. a whole lot of potential. <laughs> I have a feeling based on his internship this summer. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I couldn't help but look at Jasmine chuckling over there. So I, I had a really neat opportunity on that note as far as employers partnering in the the space, and I think it goes back to a little bit what I was mentioning earlier, what we've seen with the Uber and Lyft IPOs and the struggle to depend solely on the consumer and maybe a little venture capital um, <laughs> in order to pull through. Uh, what I had the really great opportunity to do this summer, though, was work as a product manager with Scoop. Um, and that's a carpooling company that's out in San Francisco. So they operate LA, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, and recently launched in Detroit. And by carpool, it is specifically people, someone who is, I am driving to work and I'm willing to take people along with me. So it's not rideshare in the terms of Sure, I'll pick people up and take them where they want to go. Uh, and what they've been able to do is actually partner with companies in order to make, uh, in order to balance that price of the commute to make it worth it on a per ride basis uh, for people to be able to commute and have that shorter commute time. Uh, and I, I think it is a really promising model. I think it's uh, one of the trickier things and um, one of the the concepts that I just kept coming back to over and over is behavior change. It's really hard to force behavior change in the United States. And uh, yeah, what we've talked about earlier is this car centric world that we live in here uh, to really break away and go into um, go towards carpooling as a viable solution. I mean, you mentioned I I don't even I don't view the bus as transportation. I think, yeah, we can talk about it later, too. But there are other options there that that really present themselves in the future to appeal to millennials. But I think in terms of carpooling behavior change, it's an interesting proposition. Yeah, I'm going to take that and pivot that to kind of our last topic, which, because it makes, it reminds me of a conversation we were having in a class last year where someone said, oh, wouldn't this be cool? It's a thing and it drives itself and it carries up to 50 people. And we're like, that's called a bus. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the whole driving itself thing, I think is the topic that um, our visiting professor would like to discuss. And that's the world of AV. Indeed, that's really a game changer, or potentially can be. There are some skeptics, and I must admit, I'm not you know up to speed enough on the technology per se to be able to forecast that. Yes, there will actually come an all AV future because some people are still dubious about that, and and I'm sure they have reasons. Um, what does seem apparent is that we'll get more and more close to an all AV future. We'll certainly see more and more automation in vehicles. We're already seeing that, uh, and we'll see more and more places, um, portions of the network over which uh, automation will be the only way to go. So I think we can expect, um, you know, the likelihood, shall we say, that at least uh, sometime in the next few decades, such vehicles will be available um, for large, you know, 
number of purposes. So what's that going to do to behavior change, not necessarily toward more sustainability? So 50 people on an automated vehicle is likely to be the exception than the rules as it is now for non-automated vehicles. There's a lot of um, expectation in the field that, oh, they'll be shared. And so that's going to actually make transportation uh, less congested, more sustainable, and so forth. If they will be shared, yes. Um, that's the really the big question. And one of the things that most of us, I think, believe is that unless they're priced out of reach of the middle class to actually own one, most people are gonna to wanna to own one. Now they may shed a vehicle, so a two vehicle household becomes a one vehicle household plus AVs to supplement or, and ride hailing and so forth. But will people get rid of vehicles entirely? Some will, but I think a lot won't and we could go on about that, but I'll toss it over to one or both of you. Yeah, uh, so this may be like a bit too much, but when I think about humans and like the evolution we have in our societies, right, and how the last evolution that we've been living through is information technology, computers, digital, all that stuff. I think autonomous vehicles is going to be the next evolution. Just think about how many people today just drive. And not to say that driving isn't a good profession. You can, you know, it can be fulfilling. But if you can take somebody and they don't have to drive for a living, what else can they do? I can't answer that question. I don't think anybody can. And I think that's what the next evolution will be. Right. So like around so like around this table, we can't fathom owning like not owning a car. But I use my car for 30 minutes a day. Why would I need to own one? I think I think for me personally, it's not out of the realm of possibility to say that in maybe 40, 50 years, there will be kids who don't want a driver's license. Right. Why do they need a driver's license? Right. Why do they want to own a car? Right. And for 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 like people inside cities this is already a reality almost right because owning a car is very expensive but with autonomous vehicles with all the benefits that you can capture with them i think for people who are living in suburbs the benefits i for people who are living in suburbs the question of why do i own a car is going to become more and more relevant in the next few years irrelevant more and more relevant as in like as in like do i really need yeah exactly exactly yeah so that's where I stand on that. Very, very pro. Um, totally agree. And I think this is one of the fun things about this kind of conversation is that we're going to see everything. So there are going to be more people than ever before who can totally get by without a car. Um, I don't think that will be everyone. And I think there are a lot of reasons why people will still want to own their own, including you know, the car's my uh, warehouse for stuff that I need to schlep around. Uh, I don't want to get in a car that somebody else just threw up in, or I don't want it, my kid to. Um, you know, there are all kinds of reasons, you know, just the security. So I only drive my car half an hour a day, you know, 15 minutes each way to work mm -hmm. or whatever. But I want it in my driveway when I need it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, when I need an Uber, everybody else needs an Uber, and I don't want to have to wait 15 minutes when I'm going to the airport to get you know, so there's all these sort of security issues that, again, people will want to own them. Now, again, when we look at what could happen to behavior, 
when you're hands-free, suddenly travel time becomes a lot more productive or potentially productive or pleasant. And you don't have to get work done or, you know, use it meaningfully, but you can entertain yourself in more, you know, exciting ways <laughs> or whatever. Um, boy, that's just going to make it easier to travel. So a lot of us have been talking about congestion pricing and, you know, distance-based pricing for many years. Um, seriously, if we don't get uh, much more serious about that than we have been, congestion's bad now. I mean, tolerance for congestion is not going to get any less um, strong than it is now when the time can be used in pleasant or productive ways. So if I'm currently tolerating a 45-minute commute, I'd certainly be at least as willing to do so when I can do whatever I want, you know, within reason with that time. So. People could move farther away, you know, commute of two hours each way, not as big a deal. Again, it's not for everybody. And in fact, I'll kick it back to someone else, but I can come back to a survey that we did recently where we asked people about would they move closer or farther away. Oh, well, I, I yeah, That was just a teaser. We'll come yeah. back yeah. to yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> just to make sure you get back let to me, it. Let me get in a little bit, but exactly. I don't want to get in too much. I need to hear that. Um, I, yeah, it brings up lots of interesting questions around density. I mean, we see with this current generation in Atlanta, there's uh, a willingness to push back into the city that we haven't seen since white flight of, you know, the mid-20th century. So that, that really is a, a big change that could have a lot of implications on how we view transportation. Now, that said, yes. It, there's still going to be people that don't want to live in urban environments and the ability for those people to live two or three hours away now and actually have a reasonable commute as they might define it, um, is now potential. But yes, uh, can you speak a little more to that survey? Yes, we, so we've just finished a report for Georgia Department of Transportation, GDOT, where uh, we surveyed for them the entire state of Georgia. I mean, not every single person, but a random sample of Georgia residents <laughs> statewide, which is fairly unusual in this field. A lot of times you're looking at major metropolitan area residents or students or millennials. So we tried to get a cross-section of everybody in the state and had a section of the survey talking about automated vehicles. So so of course, whatever they tell us now, you know, you can't say is really going to happen in the future, but we wanted to get an initial snapshot. And if you start doing this kind of thing repeatedly over time, you see how the trends are going. So one of the questions we asked after kind of having a bunch of questions on AVs so that we were getting them to think about what was possible and what could happen, you know, would you move closer to the places you go most often? Would you stay where you are? AVs wouldn't affect where you live, or would you move farther away? to a place maybe with more amenities, uh, even if it's more, uh, you know, farther from the places you visit most often, thinking of work, but not everybody in our survey worked, and so on. So to our surprise, of course, you know, a vast, uh, not vast, but a sizable majority said, eh, it's not going to do anything. And whether that's true or not, or whether they just couldn't imagine what it would do, who knows. But uh, it was about the same number of people said they would move closer as would move farther. So it's total, and so about 12, 11 to 12% on each of those. Um, uh, choices. So it's kind of against the narrative that, oh, it's just going to exacerbate sprawl. And I had to scratch my head a minute to say, well, okay, why would they move closer? And then it dawned on me, well, if I don't have to worry about parking the dang car, you know, then living in Midtown is great. You know, if I don't have to worry about driving the dang car and then stashing it in a $20 a day or $20 an hour, you know, um, parking garage wherever I'm going, then, you know, moving closer in to where I work or 
where the you know cultural activities are, that suddenly becomes a lot more attractive. So I think it will work both ways. And again, that's what's challenging about it. You really can't say one stereotypical thing is going to happen, but I think it can. It's releasing constraints, and so it will allow people to um, achieve their preferences more easily, whichever way they go. <laughs> One, uh, one neat application I've seen of autonomous vehicles that has a lot of um, immediate promise is May Mobility. Out in, uh, it's a company based out in Ann Arbor, operates a shuttle around, I believe, an eight or ten block radius in Detroit. I had the opportunity to walk mm-hmm. past it this summer while working with Scoop. And I, when you see things like that, especially if you, especially when combined with bus rapid transit or at least a dedicated lane that the bus can go through, uh, for, for example, then you really have the potential there for uh, much quicker impact with the autonomous vehicles and its ability to help a, a wider range than just uh, a wealthy family buying their first or second car. Absolutely, yeah. Well, this is it's a lot of talk about the future. So, kind of second to last, the penultimate question is: What kind of one technology or behavior change do you all? What are you going to say? This is going to happen in 2040. What's going to be kind of at scale a normal part of our lives? Take a moment. And I'm going to put Sunday on the spot first. I think I think it depends on who you are and where you live. Uh, but I That's a very MBA yeah. answer. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Professor Segmentation. Yeah. <laughs> Professor Sluss would be proud. Yes. Um, so I don't know. Like We are 2019 right now. 2014 is 20 years away. I look at the gains that are being made in autonomous vehicles and, you know, Tesla's really, really pushing for it, and I think they're going to drag the rest of the market with them. Um, I think by 2040, at least in major cities, you're going to get regular A-B travel. And you have to imagine drone deliveries are going to be fairly routine. I mean, there's a whole host of issues associated with that. But And then, you know, the, we're converging from both ends, both directions, to flying cars, right? You know, so uh, automated eVTOL, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, kind of taxi on de- air taxi on demand. Um, again, whole host of issues associated with that. But will the technology allow it? I suspect so by then. Um, and what will that do to a lot of the what the airline industry calls thin haul or short haul travel? It, it's going to grow the demand, I think. I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna piggyback on that. I I've had the opportunity this semester uh, while at Scheller to work with Porsche Consulting, re- uh, doing market research around uh, vertical mobility transportation uh, or passenger transportation. So looking at both intracity and intercity, and yeah, you can really see while while um, it may not be uh, progressing fully at Moore's Law. Um, it also, uh, it still is advancing rather quickly. And as a result, you are, um, yeah, 2040 does look like a realistic uh, environment for us to be um, interacting more with vertical mobility. I think it goes back to a lot of the class questions we brought up, uh, even more so with vertical mobility, as we brought up with AVs. If you think about who can afford them, uh, who are they going to serve? I mean, there's just such a, uh, uh, it's so difficult to imagine where you could actually have uh, vertical mobility that acts as public transportation or even transportation for the masses Mm -hmm. just based on cost alone. Mm -hmm. So those are going to be things to think about. I think one big thing for 2040, if I can jump in since Mm -hmm. I I piggybacked on that Take us home, Stephen. Take us home. (laughs) Um, Is we do need to think about what what is going to be the central control around a lot of these vehicles. 
uh, if we're going to get a lot of the benefits from vertical mobility in terms of vehicles being able to go at different heights, if we're going to get uh, the benefits in autonomous vehicles and then being able to weave essentially weave through one another in traffic uh, in order to get the most efficient um, time travel for each, we're going to need to have some kind of central control. And of course, security is going to be critical for that. So thinking around who is going to control that, what organizations are going to have impact there, uh, and how we get closer to that reality is going to be a really uh, big step forward from that government uh, or that public-private interaction we were talking about earlier. Great. Well, this has been this has been great, guys. Like first one, first round table. We really nailed it. I hope. Hope the listeners enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll go, we're go. We're going to go back to the intersection classic and, and wrap things up with a question we always like to ask, which is at Georgia Tech, we're all about creating the next. That's our tagline. That's where what we're about. Um, what are you creating next? And I'll get, I'll get started so you can see it can be a silly thing. It can be whatever. Um, I am creating the next trivia night for our, our social committee, which Woo. Stephen is on, uh, for the MBA program. So I'm coming up with a big list of music trivia that we'll, we'll have fun with next, next month. Sonny, what are you creating next? I'm going to go super boring. I'm creating the next analytics assignment. <laughs> that is due in a few days, and that will end this onslaught that is this week so is the data at least interesting uh what what are you digging into here it's it's like a lot of transactional questions so the data is the, the data's not bad but it's a lot of like you know what's like the mean give us like the comparable so we're just trying to get through it it's- I mean, yeah <laughs> you, you did come to business school yeah. <laughs> i didn't hear that <laughs> i'm sorry at this point it's been like we've been working like like Almost eighteen-hour days for the past three weeks. Yeah, he's, so you're in the middle of the first <laughs> first semester of the full-time MBA program. It's, yeah. so, okay. It gets better. Yeah. Good luck. Thank you. In my creating the next, uh, I I've had a really neat opportunity. So I, I grew up in Atlanta, um, left in 2008, and returned uh, only to come back to Scheller a, a few years ago. Or well, last August. Uh, one of the things I've been able to do this year is actually rejoin the or join the board of trustees for the school I went to growing up, so the Galloway School up near Chastain Park. Uh, and one of my big goals around this year is looking at how we can, um, uh, yeah, how we can actually use carpooling to, to bring in more students from around the metro area. Super cool. Very on topic. Love it. Professor? Um, I and my students are using machine learning to impute attitudes from one survey to another. So (laughs) totally changing subjects in a way. And yet, um, you know, when I study travel behavior, attitudes are so critical to the choices we make. And yet all of the regional travel demand forecasting models in use today are just about time and cost and sociodemographics and built environment. Nothing whatsoever about attitudes for a lot of reasons. They're hard to measure. How can you forecast them and so on? So we're trying to come up with practical ways to incorporate attitudinal data into regional travel demand forecasting models. Very cool. That was a mouthful, too. That was really good. Awesome. Well, that does it for this episode of The Intersection, our special mobility roundtable episode. Um, Thank you all for being here. And listeners, join us next time.